there is no such thing as vacant land. It may not have human uses in it, but it is full of life. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. I'm Lucas Cantor Santiago. I'm your host. Today we are here with Tony Hiss. He is the author of 15 books, including The Experience of Place, which has won several awards. He was a staff writer with The New Yorker for 30 years, which I've never even heard of anyone being a staff writer for that long, and a visiting scholar at NYU for 25 years. His current book, Rescuing the Planet, was released in 2022, Vintage Books, and it is forwarded by none other than E.O. Wilson, who is probably the best-known biologist in the world, certainly the best-known biologist in the United States, and definitely 100% the foremost authority on ants, and someone whose writing I've enjoyed for years. Uh, I gather from the book that he is a friend of yours, but I am definitely a fan. So, uh, Tony Hiss, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about rescuing the planet. Um, so just let's just get right into it. Tell us about Half Earth. Yes. The subtitle of the book is Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. And this is the idea that, that this is the solution to so-called biodiversity crisis, which for, for years was considered the other environmental crisis, mm. one that didn't get much attention because attention was focused as it needed to be on climate change. But it's every bit as essential phenomenon and something we need to do something about right away. It's going to take everyone's efforts. The half earth means that if we can save about half the earth as habitat for other species, then we'll be able to sail on. The reason for that is that a million species of plants and animals are in danger of extinction now. And, and that's not to count the fungi and the microorganisms that are also in danger. The reason that's important is that we really depend, all of us, on patterns of living creatures uh, in order to keep going. Us humans would not have enough food to eat if it were not for these patterns of living creatures. We would not have enough air to breathe from one minute to the next. So this goes to the very heart of everything. So far, we started protecting land in 1873 when Yellowstone National Park was set aside, the first national park. It's taken us 150 years to get from Yellowstone to about 15% of the continent and the planet as protected areas. That's only enough in the long run to save about a quarter of all the species. We need something much bigger than that. But the good news is that if we bump that 15% up to 50%, we can then save at least 85 to 90% of every living organism, all the species. Uh, not everything, but enough to keep going. Now, the thing is, we don't have that much time to do it. The slogan that's come into play is 50 by 50. We're taking that 50% by the year 2050. and the sort of interim slogan that's also come into play is 30 by 30. As a first step, protect 30% of the land and water on the planet by the year 2030. And that's newsworthy now. First, because the Biden administration, when it came into office, set that as a national goal. The U.S. has never had a national goal, protection goal before. Hmm. And then last December in Montreal, 188 countries sat down and agreed to this as a global goal. In the meantime, two U.S. states have also adopted it as statewide goals, California and New York. So, Probably could have guessed that without you naming them. Yeah, I know. So, okay, if it took us 150 years to get from zero to 15%, now we're talking about getting from 15% to 30% in a decade. Hmm. And in fact, it's already now the shortest decade on record because it's already 2023 we only got about seven years to get to double that amount. Eight, if you want to cheat and say it does, the 20s don't end until December 31st, 2030. Still a remarkably short amount of time to do something that it took us 150 years to do. Nevertheless, the good news is a lot of people are already working on this. And that's what was so exciting when I was writing my book, was finding these people 
all over the continent of North America, many of whom never heard of each other, but they've been called by something and they are working hard on this and making great progress. Hmm. Yeah, you've written a lot about the the northern wilderness in Canada and Alaska and about the indigenous people there. And one of the stories I found moving was about uh, an indigenous person who found a, had a dream about a village where his ancestors used to live and bought a canoe on Amazon or something, or I wouldn't, it would, years ago, so it wouldn't have been Amazon, but mail ordered a canoe and just went up there and found that the village was in fact still there and just decided to preserve it. Um, and it's become a, become a national park. Not only did he mail order the canoe, he didn't know how to canoe. And he had to <laughs> teach himself to do that. And as you say, when he got down to where his night vision had showed him, his ancestors had lived, they, there the tumble-down village was intact, but it needed restoration. Hmm. And these are people who, what we used to call totem poles, these hmm. large pillars that they would erect out in front of their houses, were shaped in a way to, to give the history of that family and that community, the different creatures in the vertical layers. And they were designed to be seen from the water because that was the way you would approach it. So that began a whole wonderful restoration and protection and preservation movement that has now not only led to national park status for much of the land, but also national marine park status for much of the water surrounding it. And it's helped promote this idea which the Canadian government is now desperately cheering on, which is let's start a whole second national park system in Canada where the indigenous people, the First Nations, as they're called up there, will be the rangers, the guardians, the moccasins and mucklucks on the ground, as they say. Hmm. And that's going to help Canada achieve its own targets of 25 by 25 and 30 by 30, as well as doubling the amount of protected land in Canada. And that was another revelation to me on a, a landlubber from down here in the States, from New York City, just how wild that landscape is up at the top of Canada still, all these many centuries after development and industrialization became what we thought was the norm everywhere. We thought the frontier disappeared 100 years ago or so when development reached the West Coast from coming from the East. However, if Francis Parkman, the historian who's talked about the end of the frontier, had made a right-angle turn and gone north, he would have seen this extraordinary boreal forest, as it's called, the most intact and largest landscape left on the face of the planet. Something like 3,700 miles long from Alaska to the Atlantic Ocean, a thousand miles deep, much of it still with no roads. The only way you can get from one settlement to another is by tiny planes popping in and out, except in the winter when the rivers freeze and they can slid down the rivers. So there it is, a landscape that seems endless and only gets bigger as you fly over it. Uh, extraordinary resource. And extraordinary also in the fact that Canadian government types, although historically they were terrible to their native populations as we were, never kicked them off the land. So they're still in place and still have all the knowledge they've gained over 10,000 years about how these places operate. So they're ready to take over responsibilities for the for the second national park system called Indigenous Protected Areas. Yeah, the Canadians really are, um, you know, a little bit late to the game, but doing it right there. We've had, uh, we had uh, Dr. Paulette Stevies on the show, and she is a member of the Reconciliation Council. Um, and we've had several other Native people and Native activists on the show. And... Um, I one of the things I, you know, I didn't know until I started doing this podcast about the uh, schools in Canada. I didn't oh. know that those existed. And those were, I mean, people my age were, were in those. That's right. Um, residential and schools. And the residential schools, yeah. And, you know, Canada, I think with the abolish, when they abolished the residential school program, really ended their genocide. And you could say that they ended their genocide 100 years after the U.S. ended theirs. But the reality is ours in the U.S. is pretty much still going on. And they are past, they're, they're at least past the, 
the genocide phase where they're trying to do some reconciliation. And it seems like they're at least trying to do the right things. And I didn't know about any of this uh, conservation effort that you write about in your book to have Native people be sort of the curators of the boreal forest. Um, but that's a, a really amazing idea. And it seems like a kind of a win for everybody. Well, worldwide, it turns out that something like 80% of the largest and most intact areas around the globe have indigenous populations. So Mm. Um, they are ready to be asked to contribute. Uh, that is one of the next steps. So let me ask you a stupid question and you can uh, demolish it. So one of the things I like to do on this show, I can't even use Tucker Carlson as an example anymore, <laughs> but one of the things I like to do is pretend I'm like some conservative pundit and ask you the dumb question and get you to destroy it. I know the answer to this question because I've read your book. I want the audience to know. So why is it important to preserve a bunch of trees in the middle of nowhere in Canada? Well, because our future depends on it, not just the tree's future. In the first place, those trees harbor a great amount of life. One of the nicknames of that boreal forest is North America's bird nursery. Hmm. Something like three billion songbirds migrate up there every summer to procreate and raise the next generation and then fly south again in the winter. Its second nickname is the Fort Knox of Carbon. Those trees and their roots and the peatlands around them store an incredible amount of carbon. So just by living, they are helping to hold climate change at bay. And the third reason is that we've found out more and more uh, that our own mental and physical health depends on contact with raw nature, the extent mm. possible. This is why the Japanese practice of so-called forest bathing has become so popular. Shinrin-yoku, right? Is that what they call it? Exactly. So they are one of the essential resources of the planet, that forest, hmm. uh, Mr. Carlson. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I didn't, I, I guess as a, I mean, I know about Yosemite. I know about our extensive system of national parks. I actually live in a national park kind of in Santa yeah. Suzanne. Yeah. So where, where I live is in the Northern part of Los Angeles, uh, Northern part of the city of Los Angeles and the Northern part of the County. And it is the Santa Susana. I believe it's actually a state park, but I think part of it, right. I think it's abutted to a national park. I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but it's a parkland that the place where I live was just kind of carved out of this parkland because it had been an existing ranch. But I basically look out my window into a park and wow. um, yeah, my, it, it is, it is amazing to be able to, that's where my, my studio is. And so I, you know, can work on whatever I'm working on. And if I get stressed out, I really can just walk out into nature and it's, you know, it's arid desert E nature. It's not what I'm used to being a born and bred New Yorker, but, um, but I've certainly gotten used to it and it's a, it's a completely different thing, but there's, yeah, there's something about it that like, even though it's it's very close to a highway, the air is always fresh because there's trees and there's greenery and there's like, you know, that effect that you're talking about, about the, the carbon sink. I can feel it even just in my yard. Like it's, wow. yeah, it's, it's like the, the air is more pleasant in my yard than it is down the street, which is, you know, objectively the same distance from the highway, but it's pavement, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's uh so just, I mean, taking that as like a tiny metaphor, I mean, humans should live like that. There should be parks accessible to everybody. Well, I know a lot of people in LA sort of began to feel the strength of this need because of the life of P-22, <laughs> the mountain lion, who began life in the Santa Monica Mountains and somehow crossed two freeways to end up in Griffith Park <laughs> and made a home under the Hollywood sign. Extraordinary how he was able to do that. Uh, and yeah. now that's leading to the construction. He's gone, but it's leading to the construction of a gigantic overpass that critters can use, reconnect these two landscapes that he somehow hopped between. We have a, um, there's, I just discovered this actually recently. There's a wildlife underpass under the highway right by my house. Wonderful. Um, that, yeah, my sons and I just, we were hiking around and just, I saw what looked like a tunnel and we got up there and that's what it is. It's to connect two um, parts of this park that are, sort of bisected by a highway. And yeah, one of the things that's, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this. I, I felt moving from New York to Los Angeles that, um, you know, I loved Central Park and I love Prospect Park and I'm a, I'm a big 
fan of uh, Frederick Law Olmsted's work throughout the world um, and his vision. But the the thing that I love about Los Angeles parks is that I feel like they really did it right here, that these parks are just stuff that we didn't build on. So, you know, Central Park used to be a place where people lived and then they turned it into a park. But um, Griffith Park is just like, you know, Griffith Park wasn't developed. It's just a place where it's a, it's a ranch. It used to be, I think, I think his name was Griffith P. Griffith and it was just his ranch. And for tax reasons, he turned it into a park and gave it to the city. Um, and yeah, so that seems like the, the sort of the small version of what you're talking about that instead of developing these places or getting them to the point where we have to restore them, we just designate them now as places that we need to leave alone and allow them to grow and flourish in the way that they have been for millions of years. Is that approximately the thesis of half earth? Uh, well, there's sort of three R's of Half-Earth. Hmm. One is retain places that are still wild. The other is reconnect places so that the wild places are not isolated from each other. And the third is restore places that once were wilder hmm. by making sure that they have the native species growing there and add back in those that uh, have disappeared. Hmm. The Yellowstone model, it's been said that... Uh, the national parks were the great American invention. Hmm. Well, jazz leaves out. Uh, <laughs> but a as a model, it sort of reached a stumbling place uh, in the 1980s when a brilliant young graduate student surveyed the national parks and, and discovered that, to his horror, that they were leaking species. They'd been set up in part to protect species. But if species left, not knowing that there was a boundary, and if we'd started to build up uh, along the edges, they couldn't get back in. Hmm. So uh, we needed to think at, at a larger scale than just that. And fortunately, some people were already thinking at that different scale. One of the heroes in my book is sort of the countryside counterpart of Frederick Law Olmsted, Benton Mackay, the father of the Appalachian Trail. Hmm. When he graduated college in the year of 1900, uh, he decided to celebrate by taking a pal, and they bushwhacked their way up Stratton Mountain, one of the green mountains in Vermont. No trails in those days. They shinnied up the tallest trees they could find, and swaying at the top, he had this sense that he was in a single place that stretched along the peaks of the Appalachian Mountains, running up and down the east coast of of the US all the way from Maine to Georgia. Hmm. So that is what he called a planetary feeling. And it stayed with him the rest of his life. And 20 years later, he wrote an essay about how there could be a hiking trail connecting the peaks. And that was the inspiration of the Appalachian Trail, which, and it, inspiration is the right word because it so caught people's imaginations that in the next 12 years, volunteers on their weekends carved this path through the wilderness. Uh, they've, it's been said that this is the largest public works project ever attempted by human beings on their own, just because they wanted to, not because they were told to and had to, like building the pyramids. Hmm. Um, and to Mackay, it wasn't just a trail that he was trying to create. It was also a way of getting people to think about that whole range of mountains, which he called the realm. Uh, and now, the Appalachian Trail people, having finally been able to protect the trail, are beginning to think about that realm. Hmm. North America is lucky because we have sort of good bones. We've got, that makes it easier to remember the place. We've got the, along the East Coast, the Appalachians, but it's paralleled by the Rockies in the West. And the Rockies had their own Benton Mackay, a Canadian lawyer and activist named Harvey Locke, who in the 1990s had his own vision while he was camping in the Canadian national parks, that there was a single landscape extending from Yellowstone North all the way up to the top of the Yukon, hmm. so-called Yellowstone to Yukon or Y2Y initiative that then got set up and since then has protected about 20% of that landscape. Meanwhile, others have said, oh, that's only half of it. It's really the crown of the continent <laughs> initiative, which stretches from Southern Mexico all the way up to Canada through the Rockies. So one of the things people are doing is thinking at different scales. 
Yeah, that's I didn't know that about the Appalachian Trail. Growing up on the East Coast, the Appalachian Trail was just something that you knew was there. Uh, a lot of people that I know as a rite of passage after high school or after college would hike it from one end to the other. And for international listeners, it's a it's a trail that connects. Um, it's a wilderness trail. I mean, sometimes you have to walk along a road to get from one section to another, but you can basically walk from Maine to Georgia, which is that's like right. the distance from Moscow 2, to Rome. Miles. Yeah, twenty one hundred miles. Yeah, which is about yeah, it's about I think that's about right. It's about the same as the distance from like Moscow to Rome, maybe. Maybe it's even further than that. But it's it's huge. I mean, it's a it's a it takes all summer if you if you do it. And the Pan Pacific are, Trail is another said, one. There are through hikers, which is always mm. for some reason spelled T H R U. And they usually they travel with the spring. They start in Georgia and as the weather warms, they get north. Mm. Uh, but in fact, now there's something called the International Appalachian Trail, the IAT, which extends from Maine up through the maritime provinces of Canada. Hmm. And there are other people trying to extend the, to, on the southerly end too. So it's it's really inspiring a national system, uh, which we haven't quite achieved yet, but can look forward to. So are you optimistic for the future of the planet? Very optimistic. Very. So with everything going on also, I mean, one of the things, that I think the scariest thing in your book that I don't think you intended to be frightening, but was that you you just kind of casually mentioned that under the boreal forest were, was um, oil and possibly diamonds and some other valuable things. There's also uranium somewhere. And as soon as you said that, I mean, my capitalist, fatalistic American mind just went straight to, if there's value there, someone's going to get it. And I, I don't know how you convince someone that the okay. long-term survival of the planet is more important than the short-term billions of dollars they stand to gain. There is value there, potential value. There is also existing value there, namely the life there. One of the things we're backing into is an understanding of the quality of the rest of the life that we share the planet with. Hmm. Uh, it's taken us a long time. Rene Descartes thought animals were incapable of cognition and intelligence because they were just a collection of me mechanical instincts. But we know that elephants are caring, peaceful, empathetic creatures. We know that octopuses can recognize human faces and use tools. We know that spiders can dream. Just last summer, a German zoologist named Lars Chitka showed that bees who have brains the size of a poppy seed have rich inner lives. So in fact, we are surrounded by a sea of awareness, a sea of sentience among all these other creatures. There are two uh, implications to this. One is there is no such thing as vacant land. It may not have human uses in it, but it is full of life. There is no such thing as an empty lot. It is already full, full of life. So if we need to add human uses to it, we have to get better at the way we go about developing, as we say, a place. A generation ago, a brilliant US architect uh, invented something called universal design. He's someone who contracted polio at the age of nine and was then confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, had to be carried to his classes in college up and down the stairs because there were no access for people with disabilities. Mm. So he invented universal design as a way of incorporating and in constructing places that everyone, no matter what their level of physical ability, could use. That led to the Americans with Disabilities Act, whose most prominent feature, of course, is ramps in front of all kinds of public buildings. But it goes far beyond that. It goes making sure that, say, uh, Electric light plugs are at chair level instead of way down mm. on the baseboard, uh, making sure that doorways are wide enough, making sure that playgrounds can accommodate all kinds of users. So the next step is to go from universal design to all species design. If we're going to intervene in a place that doesn't have human uses, let's try to start adding human uses in a way that doesn't subtract from what's already there. Mm. How, what are the models? A generation ago, 
laparoscopic surgery suddenly became something amazing. You could actually go into a human body by making three tiny holes, one for a camera and two for surgical instruments, miniaturized, rather than slicing someone open to cut out their appendix. Let's start doing mining in the same way. There's mm. one mining company I found online that claims it's already capable of doing that, extracting diamonds or other valuables without ripping the landscape open and, and throwing aside the land, the life that's already there. This is a huge new human problem, mm. but one we can get good at right away. Wow. I also, we had Ben Matlin on the show a few years ago, who's a few years ago. We had Ben Matlin on the show a few months ago, who is a um, disability advocate. And I just want to add to your important features of the ADA. The one that I learned from him was accessible bathrooms is the, the biggest really one. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I didn't, before 1994, you, if you were in a wheelchair, you might get into a town where there was not a single bathroom you could use. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I take and, your point. And, and, can I interrupt you for one second? Please, yeah. It reminds me that we treat ourselves so badly, even us mm. able-bodied people. If we can go into a restaurant that's got one place that is an accessible bathroom, everyone wants to use it because it's the only <laughs> humane room in the place. Mm. Instead of this cramped little horrible stall, at least there's enough the space has been set aside so there's room enough for a wheelchair to turn around it, but it's also enough space for a human being to turn around it. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, as a as a father of two toddlers, I've become very sensitive to how disgusting and cramped bathrooms are in general in the in the recent years. But uh, but I think we're getting off topic. Um, yeah. So uh, um, I was I was optimistic too after reading your book that um, that this kind of stuff that the, the changes that you that you say are necessary are already underway, which is very, very inspiring. And aside from the fact that there are going to be natural resources that will be more difficult to get at, it seems like the boreal forest especially is not, it may be a little bit like the Amazon where it's, it's not particularly habitable by humans anyway without clear-cutting it. And clear-cutting it is a, a, a huge expense, B, an ecological disaster, and C, it's just going to get you plots of land where it's too cold to really live. Um, yes, and, it's not, and the soil's too thin for farming, so mm -hmm. it isn't beckoning to us to come and rip it apart. Uh, yeah, and so how much, if we were to preserve that entire Canadian region, how close would we be to our 50% goal? Well, we'd certainly be much closer continentally speaking mm -hmm. to a 30% goal. Mm -hmm. um, it's useful to begin thinking at a continental scale mm -hmm. because these boundaries that between the Canada and the U.S. and the U.S. and Mexico are uh, just imposed by our intellects hmm. and not by the reality of the landscape. So the whole 30 by 30 notion is a benign one, by the way. Hmm. It's not a land grab. It can only work if people want it to happen and decide that some privately owned lands that we can now show are along the paths that migratory animals take are, are worth putting under some kind of conservation easement hmm. so that the use that it, it now allows can continue. We also have a lot of, in this country, public land that is not particularly thought of as habitat, but more in the sort of resource categories you're talking about. So some of that could add habitat qualities to it and uh, habitat thinking. Hmm. And there's just far more space than you, you might expect. I just was asked last Sunday to come up to a little town at the north end of Westchester County, which New York City people think of as the golden suburbs where money has fled. But <laughs> this town called Somers uh, has managed to protect without even hearing about 30 by 30, something like 28.3% of its land base, uh, just because they realized it was extraordinary. And they created a preserve on 643 acres that connected several other landscapes. Mm -hmm. There was something in the local paper that's interviewing high school graduates uh, saying, what do you like best about the town? And one guy said, well, two things, King Cone, which is the best 
soft serve ice cream I've ever tasted, and the Anglefly Preserve, which is this wonderful protected landscape up there now. So here's uh, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because you had no way of knowing this, but I actually grew up in Somers. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So You're a I tusker. grew up. Yeah, I'm a Tusker, and I grew up uh, across the street from Muscoot Farm, which is one of those okay. areas that's connected. And there is a a slightly sinister history to that place, which is that they really wanted to make a preserve out of it. Old man Muscoot didn't want to sell it, and so they condemned one of his buildings and foreclosed on the farm. But that so that maybe wasn't the nicest thing to do to old man Muscoot. But well. that place is a gem. It's um you know, something like a hundred acres of parkland uh, that my, the house I grew up in is across the street from. So I literally am out my door into a park. Uh, my dad, my parents still live there, out the door into a park. And it's um, also like a working farm that kids can come and see how, how farms work. You can buy milk there. It's an amazing place. It is. Yeah. Well, what do you know? Glad <laughs> to meet you. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it's so interesting that you went up there because that is my, my model of, uh, of conservation. It's, and, and you know, one of the things I, I, when I talk to people about climate change, who are um, more uh, more on the on the right and who feel like you know this is going to work itself out, liberals have been lying to us about it for years. They said the world was going to end in 1970 and it didn't. Um, the people who feel this way are tend to be people who are, in my experience, from places like Somers or places like the Midwestern United States, where there is so much space and there is so much wildlife. And so it's hard to imagine. Um, it's hard to imagine that the rest of the world isn't like that. It's hard to imagine that there isn't enough space and enough um, enough places for wildlife. But when you live in somewhere like New York City or Los Angeles, it's very easy to imagine that we've maybe overextended our use of land um, because it's it's so constricted. And so so yeah, there is a um, and yeah, I, I guess also like, what, what do you think about the idea that someone living in Somers might feel like, okay, well, I've done my bit for climate change. Let me go. You know, because people who live in Somers also drive um, Hummers and gigantic pickup trucks. They do. Yeah. But um, they, um, I think they're excited about hmm. being seen as a model community. Hmm. Uh, and there's more to be done. Uh, there are still uh, large tracts of land. And, and also beyond the town borders, uh, to the east of them, is another initiative uh, called the Eastern Biotic Corridor of Westchester County, hmm. centered around the Ward Pound Ridge Reservation, which is a 4,000-acre yeah. protected landscape, but potentially a 22,000-acre landscape uh, across several towns. Hmm. So all of this stuff is sort of bubbling up in, in a very yeasty way. Uh, it, when you talk to these people, you can't not be optimistic because something in them or something in where they are has called out to them and they've responded by uh, dedicating themselves to thinking of something to do. Hmm. And right out front of, and right out their front door, there seems to be something to do uh, wherever they are. Yeah. It's one of the things you can do in Westchester um, uh, because a lot of the tracts of land out there are, are pretty big and you can uh, years ago, you were able to buy just quite a bit of land, several, you know, like a dozen acres of land with a house. And then you you got to pay taxes on all of that. And one of the things that they allow you to do and have for years is to designate part of your land as a park. And so then it can't be built on. So you're, no one's going to encroach, um, no one's going to encroach on you, but you also don't have to pay taxes on it anymore. And the, that's right. And, yeah. And the state ends up owning it, which I think is a really really fantastic program. Some Several of my friends have taken advantage of that. Wonderful. Yeah. So I think it's time to um, move on to talking about, uh, well, here, I'll make a sort of natural segue is one of the things that I loved before I left New York was that uh, at that time, the Sawmill River bike path had gone all the way up past Somers into Mayapak. And you could literally ride your bike from Prospect Park on a dedicated bike path through 99% of this ride from Prospect Park in Brooklyn all the way up to Mayapak in Westchester County, New York. And that was built on the old rail line and they sort of de designated parkland around it, or I guess there was already parkland around it. And it's become this, um, and it just follows this river all the way up to Westchester County. Um, the I old think, Yep. So, uh, but speaking of rivers, the book you chose today was... Mark Twain's, uh, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain's 
Life on the Mississippi, which was published in 1883, the year before he published Huck Finn. Um, we did a, an episode on the show about Huck Finn a few months ago, which was a eye-opening thing to read as an adult. I hadn't read it since I was a kid. But this book is totally different. It's, uh, it's a bit of autobiography and a bit of history. And the first part of the book, which um, I know you wanted to talk about and which I found to be the most fascinating, was um, Mark Twain's journey as a riverboat captain. He learned, or a riverboat pilot, I should say. And I, I think everybody knows that Mark Twain is associated with riverboats, and most people know that his name is a pseudonym that has something to do with riverboating. But uh, you really find out the details of that in this book. And so, um, so yeah, I loved it, and I can see why you picked it, because there's so much interesting ecological things on it. Um, but I'll ask you the question I ask everyone, which is, why did you pick this book? And I'll let you go to town. Well, I'm fortunate that I have an old copy that I inherited from my parents. Hmm. Um, Mark Twain was actually working on Huck Finn when he wrote this book. And in one place in the beginning of the book, he actually quotes from the manuscript of the un in uncompleted book uh, uh, and stuffs it into this book. But it has very much the same spirit, except that it's told first person. And he said the greatest part of his life, the best job he ever had was the Mississippi steamboat captain, uh, pilot, as you say. Pilots were more important than the captains uh, because they are the ones who knew the river. But becoming a pilot was this extraordinary process of rearranging your thinking. And it spoke to me not only because he makes it come alive, but because we're trying to rearrange our thinking in a way in order to make it real for us the need to respect so much of the rest of the life that we share this planet with. Hmm. It's a a transformational process. Well, the process of becoming a pilot, you had to become an apprentice to a, an existing pilot. And he fortunately found one of the best pilots, Mr. Bixby, who took him on as a cub. Hmm. Well, there was so much to learn. First thing you had to learn was just the name of every uh, town and point uh, along 1,200 miles of the Mississippi River from New Orleans up to St. Louis. And you had to learn it both ways because it looked different coming south than it looked from going to north. Then you had to learn where the fact that if you were going north, you wanted to hug the shore because that's where the water was less strong. The currents were less strong. But if you were coming south, you wanted to get out in the middle of the river because then the water currents could push you along. But then you had to learn the so-called shape of the river not only the names of the places along each side, but how the river was bending in and out. Because in those days, the river was almost a living thing. This was long before the Corps of Engineers began to engineer it into a tame river. And not only that, but it was changing every month. The sandbars would shift from here to there. So you had to relearn it every month. And you had to learn it by day and by night. You had to be able to know where you were, even if you couldn't see where you were. On a, it would help if you, on a starlight night, but some nights didn't have moonlight or starlight. And some had thick fog. And you had to know where you were precisely at any moment. It took years to master this knowledge. And there are very few parallels to it. Hmm. Maybe going to med school is something like the same thing in terms of just memorizing everything inside a body and how it works. Maybe what used to be called the knowledge London cab drivers had to learn every squiggle and alley and street of that metropolis, hmm. which is not laid out on a grid, um, and had to pass tests in, or, in order to become cab drivers. And maybe it's akin to what ancient Polynesian navigators were able to do, sailing across the Pacific with no landmarks at all, yet hmm. always knowing where they were by what they could read of the water and the stars. Knowledge that became so supposedly redundant once we had instruments like compasses and the London cabbie knowledge becoming so-called so no longer needed once we had GPS uh, telling us where to go. But in the case uh, of what we're trying to master, it's something that's not native to us and we're trying to reach out to all the places around us and realize that we live not just on the planet, but within this really strange layer of life around hmm. the planet, the biosphere, which is ancient, 
which is abundant, but inherently vulnerable in a way we've never quite uh, owned up to previously, that it's very, very thin. Uh, most living creatures live within this band from the top of Mount Everest down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific. It's 12 and a half miles. Laid out flat, as someone said, you could drive across it in 20 minutes. Hmm. So we have this built-in vulnerability that we have to begin to experience. Astronauts talk about what's been called the overview effect, looking back at Earth from the spacecraft, from the moon. They suddenly see this blue pearl in space and see how different it is from everything around it and how precious it is. Well, most of us will never get up, even with Elon Musk's help, beyond uh, the atmosphere. So we have to begin to experience that kind of overview effect from within. Hmm. And we're learning as, and what's one of the wonderful things about Mark Twain is he tells the story with his usual humor about how much he hated learning all this. And every time he learned something, Bixby would tell him there was something else to learn and how discouraged he felt and how miserable he felt and how much he felt that he was the laughingstock because he hadn't learned it yet. Um, but he persevered. He learned it, and it became the thing he was proudest of, I think, in all his life. Mm -hmm. It only lasted a few years because he mastered the trade in the late 1850s, and once the Civil War started, the whole trade on the Mississippi just sort of flattened out, worse than COVID, and mm. there were no more pilot kings of the river. Uh, so then he had to drift into writing as a career. Uh, and as you say, Mark Twain is associated with the river, the nickname that Samuel Clemens adopted. Because if you were sounding depths, Mark Twain was two fathoms, 12 feet, and that meant there was enough enough room for the paddle wheel steamboats to clamber across. One of the amazing things he described is just the, the feats of memory that these captains were able to to do. And yeah, as you said, it was it was a this was this incredible, incredibly detailed, incredible occupation where you had to know so much in order to do it. And it only lasted for about 80 years, um, the entire trade, you know, from the invention of the steamboat or from the, you know, deployment of the steamboat onto the Mississippi until they just started running railroads, which were much more efficient um, or using barges. But the um, he, he would describe these feats of memory where a captain would be holding a conversation with you and someone is always sounding on the boat. So someone's always saying, this is our depth. And just every, you know, every 10 seconds, this is the depth, this is the depth. And he would say that a week later, that captain could remember exactly where he was when there was one foot or one fathom of depth difference. And he could tell you exactly where that was. He could tell you the color of the tree that would, you know, be the indication. And that they knew this river from like on a level that it's kind of impossible for me to imagine, especially because it was changing all the time. It would break its banks and change constantly. And they knew every little nook and cranny of it in, in a way, as you say, like to understand it as a living thing, I, it kind of felt to me like the way that, you know, you could learn everything there is to know about a horse and you might need to know that, but also you can kind of look at a horse. If you have some experience with horses, you can look at it and kind of tell what it's about to do, you know? And like, you don't need to necessarily have all the details of which bones are aligned where in order to know that this horse is about to break to the right, you know? Um, but they would know, they would see, okay, the horse is about to break to the right. Also, its third mandible bone is like two millimeters to the left and, you know, and its muscle is firing with this pressure. It, they would know all that kind of detail about the river. And then they would have to know all that detail about their boats too. Um, let me just, really an amazing Let me just read one passage. Please. Because they also had to learn to look at the face of the river and read what it was saying. The face of the water in time became a wonderful book, a book that was a dead language to the uneducated passenger, but which told its mind to me without reserve, delivering its most cherished secrets as clearly as it uttered them, as if it uttered them with a voice. And it was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. Throughout the long 1,200 miles, there was never a page that was void of interest, never one that you could leave unread without loss never one that you would want to skip, thinking you would find higher enjoyment in some other thing. There never was so wonderful a book written by man, never one whose interest was so absorbing, so unflagging, 
so sparklingly renewed with every perusal. Hmm. The, just the joy that comes through passages like that is extraordinary. Hmm. And I think that's similar to the kind of joy people feel when they latch onto something that they want to do to help protect the life of the planet, to keep life alive. Yeah, there's something amazing about, uh, I mentioned that I live in this park and it's, um, you know, it's arid, it's, it's brown rocks. And it's not what I'm used to thinking of as a lively place. But now that I've lived there for several years, there's so much life there. There's so much happening. I mean, there's animals that live beneath the ground, there's lizards that come out perennially, there's uh, different flowering patterns to the cactuses and to the, the small grasses that are there. And it's it's as alive as anywhere I've ever lived. But when I first moved there, and I think for anyone who comes to visit who's not um, familiar with this type of landscape, you look at it, it just looks like a bunch of rocks. And it's amazing just being, you know, being close to it to, to really see the, uh, to really see the cycles of it. And I remember when I first moved there, my neighbor who I had just met said something about how, you know, there's a lot going on out there. And he's looking out there and seeing something. And I looked out there and I literally just saw some rocks. And I was like, all right, I guess this guy's crazy. But um, he was right. It's a, you know, it's a new story every day. And, you know, I can look out my window and just see all of these things unfolding and all of these animals sort of trading spaces and doing this elaborate dance. And it's, uh, it's really amazing. And I, I, I mean, I think, I think if everyone or even just a plurality of people saw the earth in that way or saw more places around them in that way, the motivation to save the planet in the way that you're describing uh, would would be there, and maybe it is there already. Maybe we're it's closer than we closer than I think. Anyway, I think it's very close. I mean, there's a hmm. phrase among uh, bird watchers, birders, spark bird. Uh, mm -hmm. At some point in their life, something about some bird reached out to them, whether it was the color, whether it was the flight whether it was the song, whether it was the shape, you know, reached out to them in a way that grabbed hold and wouldn't let go and change them. And they have spent the rest of their life looking at birds. Um, but it doesn't have to be a bird. Uh, it could be the, the shape of the place you're in or the fact that there's something, there's something living there that you never suspected was there, as you said, uh, when you saw the brown rocks. Uh, hmm. There's something that speaks and won't let go. Uh, and that's the easy way into this. It was amazing to find out how much was going on among people who didn't know about the what the next guy was doing. They were just doing it. So it's one thing mm -hmm. to say, okay, it's now organized as a goal, but it's another thing just that it's happening. And, and also I found out that a lot of the happening began far before I would have thought it was happening. Even back as far mm. as the First World War, a leading landscape architect of that time, whose business dried up because of the war, put his staff to work creating a national plan for the future of the U.S., uh, which is still yet to be published. But he proposed protecting at least 30% of the landscape. In 1917, mm. we could have had wow. 30 by 1930. Uh, not just 2030. Um, Could have avoided a lot of problems if we yeah, had. There's wonderful roots to this, as well as a wonderful flowering of it going on. Hmm. And at the same time, there's this need now. Uh, we realize uh, how close we've come to not being able to, to protect everything hmm. and how we've got to uh, this next generation has got to make a difference. A, a new UN report that came out just in March 2023 said decisions made in this decade will affect life thousands of years from now. Wow. Now, a lot of people have heard about the so-called Iroquois Great Law of Peace uh, that established democracy among tribes in 1450, said to be a precursor of the U.S. Constitution. That's the document that introduces the idea of thinking seven generations ahead. Well, if we have to think, say, 3,000 years ahead, that's more like 100 generations. 
that's a totally new concept to us. And we've got to get good at it pretty quick. So it's exciting to be here now when we have a chance to help set that in motion. Uh, what a boon. What a privilege to be here now uh, when so much can happen. Wow. Well, Tony, I think that is a great place to end. And I think that is a great um, thought to uh, to end this this episode on because what a it's not often that I get to talk to optimistic environmentalists. So um, I'm going to I'm going to uh, appreciate this episode for uh, seven generations into the future, at least. <laughs> um, so I want to end by asking you the question that I ask everyone to end the show, which is to recommend two books to our audience. Two books? Yep. Oh, gosh. I wish I'd had advance notice of this one. <laughs> <laughs> this one this one gets everybody. Don't worry. You're in good company. Uh, well, um, one book would certainly be any one of E.O. Wilson's books. Uh, take your pick. There, he, mm -hmm. he was a writer almost as with almost as much charm as as Mark Twain and a fund of knowledge about biodiversity all over on the planet, not just ants. And another is a science fiction novel by Doris Lessing called Shikasta, uh, which is about hmm. a broken earth and how it could be mended, a novel that seared into me and has stayed with me for decades. Interesting. Well, I, I'll I'll add a second to um, anything by E.O. Wilson. I think everything he's written that I've read is just fantastic, and and I agree with you that he does have that same charm. He really, I never would have thought to compare the two, but he really does have that kind of southern charm that Twain has, um, or I should say, southern um, Easterner moved north to make his fortune, or Southerner moved north to make his fortune charm. I, I guess they're they're similar in that way. This episode of the Book Society podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair is a literary festival. It happens in Miami in November every year, third week of November. You can visit their website, miamibookfair.com. You can find them on socials. They're amazing. So if you've ever dreamt about meeting up with some of your favorite authors, some of the greatest living minds in literature today, the Miami Book Fair is the place for you. They have the best authors around, giving talks, giving lectures, just walking around, looking at all the tables with all the wonderful books. It's a great place to buy books. It's a great place to be around authors. It's a great place to read books. And Miami is just a cool city. So if you've never been, it's highly, highly recommended. Thanks, Miami Book Fair. Thank you for this episode. Thank you for previous episodes. Thank you for future episodes. I will see you in Miami in November. Uh, for the ladies who are listening to this show, men's rooms are indeed disgusting, in case you didn't. Um, <laughs> what you suspected is true. Uh, there is pee all over the floor.